Come in, Ocean Sailor. Come in, Ocean Sailor. The Ocean Sailor Podcast. Brought to you by Ocean Sailor Magazine and Kraken Yachts. Well, hello and welcome to Ocean Sailor Podcast number five with me, Dick Durham, and with my co-skipper and chairman of Kraken Yachts, Dick Beaumont. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, we, uh, we, we're a bit amazed, aren't we, Dick? Uh, we're already on number five, but we've had some some really great ones. I mean, uh, the, the, the last two uh, podcast episodes uh, with uh, Rene Tiramisen as our guest have been incredibly well received and, uh, and, uh, and the podcasts are really starting to snowball now. So please yeah. do tell everybody about them. We're really sure that we've, uh, we've, we've got something to interest you uh, on, uh, on this one as well. Yeah, well, Rene was a surprise. I mean, he really did open up. Uh, I mean, I know he's a sort of a blunt, a straight talker, you might say, but I didn't think he was going to reveal uh, his innermost innermost soul, but he did, because uh, our next guest um, is uh, is Jerry Northwood, a hugely respected uh, ex naval man, runs a private company for providing uh, security for um, for yachts. Uh, even governments and big ships through piracy areas, and uh, he tells us yeah. about that. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he's—I uh, would say he's his uh, company, Mast Securities, is uh, the leading maritime uh, security company in the world. Um, it would seem that and, way, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think the listeners are going to be astounded because he's—he's going to tell us a side of this whole piracy issue that um, I think the Ash Joe, certainly I didn't appreciate no. the whole uh, element um, that completed that uh, that role that he carried out and the elimination of uh, the big piracy issue um, that he conducted. I mean, he's a, he's a top man, so yeah. we'll have him on. So, um, you know, Dick, let's, oh, good. let's, let's call him up and get Bring him, him on. Bring him on. Um, we have with us today a very special guest, uh, Jerry Northwood. Good morning. Uh, he's a former Royal Navy commander, uh, and he is now the chairman of a company called MAST, which stands for Maritime Asset Security and Training. Um, it's a company which uh, involves uh, what's well, a leading risk management and security company. And the customers of this company include multinational um, companies, governments, uh, and private yacht owners who are a little bit windy about uh, entering pirate areas. So if you want a Gurkha on board, Jerry's the man to ask. But Jerry, perhaps we could start with your operation, uh, capturing pirates off Somalia, uh, for which you were awarded the OBE, I believe. But when was that, Jerry? It all started back in 2000, end of 2008, when the European Union um, asked the Maritime Battle Staff, the organisation I was working for in the Royal Navy, to set up the European Union Naval Force in London. And um, we put together a force of ships to go and patrol out in the Gulf of Aden and counter the, the, the Somali piracy problem that was running at the time. It was setting up that organization um, that allowed us to really put a stamp on, a military stamp on the whole issue, uh, working very closely with the uh, with the merchant navy organisations, with the commercial organisations, people like Bimco, Intertenco, also working with the cruise liners, and then at, uh, very shortly after all that started, in fact, the um, some of the yacht organisations came to us as well, 
um, people like the Vasco da Gama, the Blue Water Cruise, asking whether we could help them in facilitating or advising on their their trips across the Indian Ocean. So prior to that then, Jerry, um, what had they been doing? They'd presumably just been relying on their own ability, whatever that might have been, or lack of ability, to try to deal with this menace. Yeah, and of course they were the the... the the, the large Asian cruises, of course, were going through in a in a gaggle. So they had a certain amount of mutual protection from the fact that there were several yachts keeping rough, more or less together. Uh, but what we were seeing with the um, with the commercial side of things was the Somalis were were becoming increasingly successful at hijacking a vessel um, and then taking it down to the coast of Somalia and holding it there for ransom. So it was a relatively unique form of piracy. If you look around the rest of the world at the time, the majority of the piracy was um, maritime mugging. It was people getting on board mm. to steal valuables. Um, and very rarely was there anything um, involving re- uh, kidnapping of people or of the entire ship. We can't see that emerge as well in Nigeria right. at roughly the same time, but in a very different style, and it's a different form of, um, of uh, maritime crime. Jerry, can I, can I just ask, um, you mentioned that uh, quite a lot of your organisations uh, called you and uh, were requesting assistance. Was that something um, that you were geared up to do and, and um, could provide? Well, we thought, it, we thought it was very interesting, really, because at the time you had, uh, you'd had a number of, um, of incidents where yachts had been taken by the Somali pirates. Uh, the ones that came to mind were French flag, and the French had, had acted very, very robustly, and they got in and freed the, um, the captives. And then there was a yacht called the Tanit, and that was also captured by Mardi pirates. The rescue team went in to rescue them. Uh, they were relatively successful, but very sadly, the skipper of the yacht and the owner was, was killed in the exchange. But it showed how, how dangerous the whole thing could be, and particularly once you start a firefight in a very small yacht. You know, someone's going to get hurt badly. Um, and, uh, and of course, in this particular case, it was the, the owner of the vessel. Um, so our advice was quite simply, you know, whilst we're here to protect your right to do whatever you like, um, and by all means, if you if you want to go across the uh, Indian Ocean in your yacht, we're not going to stand in your way. But we would strongly recommend you, you do not do so. We think you're mad. I mean, it just was becoming too dangerous. Yeah, when we were talking to uh, Rene, um, you, you, I believe you've heard the uh, interview that we did with Rene on the previous podcast. Um, you know, he was saying that uh, he was calling up people and could, uh, call, calling up various navies for assistance, but didn't seem uh, to get any. Um, I was very, very well aware because I was talking to him about the prospect of doing this down in Phuket before he left. And I know that he contacted the Dutch Navy and they said, look, you know, we're really strongly advising you not to do this. This is a bad idea. And Rene then basically <laughs> decided to go anyway. Um, and he's he's thought is that, or or I don't know if he was directly told uh, told that. Um, he, and I know he did call the Dutch Navy, and they basically said, "Well, we've told you not to come here. Don't come crying to us now. Things are going wrong." Mm. I don't know if you feel that's credible or likely or it's quite possible um the thing is there is a very well-worn process now and uh we put that in place back in 2008 2009 um set it off that, that and that process is what they call best management practice 
And that was about us going to the shipping industry and saying, you need a set of self-protection measures. And we also need a set of procedures which people can follow. So back in 2000, early 2009, we set up a maritime security center, Horn of Africa. That's still in existence. And that is the reporting center. That's where the shipping companies and anyone going through the region, before they arrive in the region, should be reporting in and saying, this is me, this is the nature of my vessel, and this is my, my, my plan. And the team at MSC Hoa will then risk, <clears throat> risk assess that vessel. So if it's a tug that does 10 knots and clearly is very vulnerable with a low freeboard, that means that the ships that are out there, whatever they are, and the uh, maritime patrol aircraft, if there are any, can keep an eye open for it. <clears throat> um, but you're not necessarily going to get an escort. What you're going to get is that you're going to attract more attention. Obviously, the large container vessel doing 20 knots with a very high, with a relatively high freeboard um, is, is not going to be uh, one, that one that the military need to watch because it's not at risk. Anything that's doing um, more than 18 knots or with a high freeboard is low risk. Anything below that, you start to increase, incrementally increase the risk of Somalis being able to successfully board you should they choose to come out and do that. And of course, back in that, those days, they were doing it a lot. So yachts are inherently vulnerable. And it wasn't um, that uh, people were saying, well, we're not going to look after you if you do it. There was several incidences uh, where yachts were attacked or were captured. And, and the military did do something about it. Uh, the Tanit is one example. There were others. Yeah, I mean, I believe, coming back to Rene, he met the Chandlers, uh, I think, on the trip down. Um, and again, I mean, I think that was quite mm. a way, they were quite a way into the Arabian Sea or rather um, perhaps the North Indian Sea, uh, but that was in a region they'd been strongly advised, I understand, on several occasions they shouldn't go into, and yet they did. And of course, you know, their story, I think that's recently become a film or something, hasn't it, Dick? Do you know about that? Uh, it's, there was a documentary on Netflix and they did produce a book which had caught <laughs> incurred quite a lot of wrath amongst the sailing community because they, they were seen to have benefited from this, having been rescued. Uh, and that's only going to encourage, was the thinking, other piracy mm. attacks. Their argument is, well, we're paying off the ransom. Yeah, well, the counter-piracy the, the counter um, uh, task group that I ran in 2011-2012 was in some ways a, a, um, a strengthened operation as a result of the time. Oh, was it? Oh, right. you know, and try and ensure that we had people in place um, who are capable of conducting a hostage rescue in the event that uh, a similar incident or UK nationals were taken um, taken hostage by the Somalis, i.e. something along the line of the Chandlers. And in fact, what we got used for um, was a lot of disruption of the Somalis along the coast of Somalia. And we were on hand to uh, rescue the, um, the uh, crew of the Italian freighter, the Monte Cristo, when she was captured by pirates, but the crew were able to retreat to the citadel, um, and we were able to get there before the pirates were able to break into the citadel and uh, and, and create the complete capture and hijack for themselves. Uh, that's that, that's all very well if you've <laughs> got a boat big enough to have a citadel, I guess. Well, exactly. So it's really all about time, because the the the, the chances are the forces of law and order are not going to be immediately on, uh, on hand. It's a big ocean, and there are very few ships out there and very few aircraft. So if you get attacked, you want to, you want to try and create as much time between 
the pirates being able to get on board your vessel and the um, the military being able to get there as you as you possibly can. So or, or try and reduce that that period of time as much as you can. So if you can, uh, if if as we saw in the beginning, a lot of ships were being pirated, um, and as the master was making the call, the pirates were climbing onto the into the into the bridge. It's all over. Um, if if you can prevent them getting to you by retreating to a citadel or having an obstruction so they can't get on board, then you give the military time to intervene. If, if you know, prior to the citadel situation where the crew could all be safe, once the pirates had got on board, did you consider then that that operation was lost and you just, because of the risk of danger to the crew, I imagine? Once they were once they once they were on board and the the crew were captured, uh, you're you're now into a ransom situation, and bear in mind this is criminality. You know, this is not a war. the The crew are by no means what we would describe as safe, but they are being held for a purpose, and that is to as part of the ship and its uh, cargo to be sold back to the owner. Providing someone's prepared to pay for that, the crew, hopefully unharmed, will be returned. If you go in and conduct a, a hostage rescue at that point, there's every chance that um, that the uh, crew will be will be caught in the crossfire, and there will be casualties. So, no one wanted to get into the, um, and it was it was looked at on a number of occasions, and one or two nations did get very close to doing it uh, to try and make an example, uh, as we saw with the French. The French did do it for. Some, some in, yeah. in some cases of yachts. But by and large, the policy was quite rightly to, at that point, to leave it to the kidnap and ransom negotiators, the insurance people, the lawyers. And, and effectively, what you're looking at is a, is a, is a form of uh, a rather extravagant parking fine, really. The, um, <laughs> That's the, a the way of take a vessel like you know, say the, the Sirius Star back in at the end of 2008, Saudi tanker with $100 million worth of cargo on board, they could take it down to the coast of Somalia within the space of a few weeks, and ransoms negotiated, and for about a million dollars, 1% of the cargo value, she sent back to the owner. So, so, so Jerry, the kind of everybody knows that there's this whole big fuss about um, you should never pay a ransom. But from an insurer's point of view, um, that was always that's always going to happen simply because of the numbers you've just mentioned. Well, you shouldn't pay ransoms to terrorists, and that's where I think this, that's where we find ourselves in a legal position, a difficult legal position. If you're if you're captured by terrorists, you 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 should not be paying ransoms. That that, that puts you on the wrong side of the law. But in other situations, where it is your property, it's extortion. Your property has now been has now been sequestered by somebody who shouldn't really own it, but they do. So how are you going to get it back? Either you turn around and say, well, sorry, I'm not interested, you can keep it, which of course is what did happen in some instances, um, which of course left the crews in very, very difficult circumstances um, mm. and was really quite tragic for some of them. Um, or you, you negotiate a price. So Jerry, when you said earlier, which I found fascinating, you said it's not a war. And that's, of course, the key, I guess, because you're a military ship uh, and you're going to the assistance of these people. But un until 
um, until it, well, it's not a war, so there's not much, are you saying there's not much you can actually do as a military force? Well, it's um, it's what the um, Americans in the past have referred to as the three-block war, being able to cooperate at different levels. And it's something right. navies, and particularly the Royal Navy, is very good at. You operate at a very high level um, against a, um, a, a complex threat, um, you know, whether that be the Russians, the Chinese, or or whoever your enemy of the day might might um, might be, and at the other level, you're conducting what we used to call constabulary operations. So, it's, in other words, you're conducting operations mm. that are at a, a much lower level against largely criminality. Um, might right. there might actually be terrorism sitting behind it? So, a lot of the operations in the Indian Ocean about catching drug runners, ships that are shifting drugs around the region because that's a way of shifting material men, terrorists, people. Um, and other materials. Um, and so you're operating against a much lower form of threat. And in the case of Somali pirates, they were criminals. They're not, not at war with them. They're criminals. And actually, so right. when, we did, when we did pick them up, we um, conducted a, um, we did the evidence piece in accordance with the Police and Criminal right. Evidence Act. So that whole collecting of, of, of evidence and statements and witness statements and making a proper case for a judge to look at was was conducted, and if we couldn't do that, then actually we couldn't take them to court. So, so if if you couldn't do that, what, did you have to then call in uh, the civil authorities of the country they were from, or taken off, or were they involved in? But in the case of the, um, suppose there was in, no civil authorities in Puntland. Well, that's that's the the um, the the legal finish, as they as they called it, was something which had to be developed at the time because not many, not with piracy having last been a real problem, you know, several hundred years ago. A lot of nations' piracy laws are, uh, are relatively out of date and therefore not not as fit for purpose as they might be. The other thing is these these crimes have been conducted in international waters against a variety of different flags. And if the, the flag, flag state of the vessel is, um, say, Italian, now in the case of the Monte Cristo, which is an Italian flag, the Italian authorities said, yep, give them to us with all the evidence, all bagged up, nicely done, we gave the pirates to them and the um, uh, the evidence, and they took them back to Rome and they conducted a court case. Ah, okay. Mm. I was going to ask you that question: Who who is it that uh, actually yeah. tries them it's and where a, are they tried? It's, absolutely, it's according to the flag, is it? Yes, yeah, according to it's according right. to the. It, it starts with the flag state. Um, then, of course, it, 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 but very often it's not a flag state that is prepared to do that. I mean, I think in the case of the um, Myers, Alabama. The, the pirates were tried back in right. in the United States. Um, the US prepared to do that. What the UK did was put a lot of weight and effort behind um, uh, the UN ODC, and they set up. They they they, they negotiated with the Kenyans uh, to conduct trials of Somali pirates, and they also negotiated with the Seychelles with the Seychelles to do the same thing. And so, when I was operating down off the um, when we were operating down off the coast of Somalia. Doing the counter piracy task group work, we arrested quite a number of different uh, pirate groups, and we took those across to to the Seychelles, oh, okay. um, and they were all prosecuted in the Seychelles. But with the UNODC working behind the scenes to pay for it and make it all happen. Right, as that was the nearest um, body with a with a sort of court system. Well, the UNODC was is um, was there to. Uh, ensure that the, the resourcing was done, and um, and then of course beyond that you've got where they're going to stay in prison, 
And of course, what you don't want to do is silt up the Seychelles' relatively small prison system with lots of Somali pirates. So they then created um, Western-style standard prisons in Somalia so that the pirates could spend a bit of time in the Seychelles and then they'd be, or Kenya. And then they'd, right. be, they'd be taken to Somalia. <clears throat> and, the, and the UN uh, organised um, that was basically... All, that, that was UN organised. But the, ah, to, the, to the credit of the, the Seychelles, um, they recognised that Somali piracy in the Indian Ocean was a problem for them as well. You know, they sit out there at a right. relatively strategic point. Mm. And the last thing they need is um, Somali piracy rampant around their shores. Mm. So mm. they took it very seriously. Um, and it also meant that I had, um, because it's a relatively small, small um, political system, um, the British High Commissioner there had very ready access to the president. If you want to go, <clears throat> you want to see the Prime Minister of the UK, it's probably going to take you a while to get through the door of number 10. In his case, it was just go down, see the president. So I'd phone him up and say, look, I've got a bunch of pirates on board. Um, I've got a pretty good case against them. Uh, what do you think? And he'd say, oh, I'll go and talk to the president about it. <laughs> and meanwhile, meanwhile Whitehall, White, the, the, the Whitehall with the Foreign Office and all the rest of it will, would be way behind, way behind the curve on that because... They, um, they couldn't move fast. They couldn't move at that no. kind of speed. That's, that's a very, very interesting background, that. It you is know, fascinating. It's not, because you know, it's all very well. All anybody ever focuses on is the actual piracy incident and how it was dealt with. But obviously, as you explained, there's a whole machination of situations that got to be dealt with afterwards. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, that legal finish is very, is very important. So... People have always talked about the the three legged stool out there, which is the uh, the military, the, the military, the best management practice, and then the armed guards. But in actual fact, it's a four legged stool, which is the legal finish. And that is right. you put those four together, and the Somali piracy problem retreats. Hmm. Well, one thing I just yeah, one thing I'd just like to ask you, uh, Jerry, um, when we were again back to talking to uh, Rene. He was quite convinced that there was very little collaboration between the various navies. Or, or no, in fact, he he claimed that there was no collaboration between them. And you had to phone, call up one, and you had to call up another, and you had to call up another. And everybody was completely working uh, yeah. independently and without reference to each other. Um, it sounds like, for what you're saying, that's not maybe not exactly the case. No, and BMP best management practice. Which is now in its fifth edition, and it's a global BMP <clears throat> rather than just specifically Indian Ocean. But it's very clear about what you should do. It's very clear about calling MSC HOA and registering the vessel's details so that a risk assessment could be taken against you. And then once you're inside the high risk area, uh, you should be talking to and listening to uh, the United Kingdom Maritime Trade Organization, UKMTO, which is based in Dubai. And if something happens, they're your first point of your first point of call. If you look back to the film of Maersk, Alabama, and the Captain Phillips film, um, when they when they call the authorities to say we're being attacked by pirates, it's UKMTO, slightly dressed up version of what UKMTO looks like for the, for the sake of the film. But that's UKMTO they're talking to, and UKMTO will then disseminate the message out to the different force commanders. And they will, um, they will make sure that any ship that's in the area is able to attend to that emergency. 
irrespective of that ship's, uh, you know, nation, whichever nation that ship was from, it wasn't. I would say irrespective, because although some ships are specifically assigned to the counter piracy mission, there will be other ships there which might be passing through. It might be transiting to get to um, a different mission or a different place. So, you know, an emergency at sea is something that we all know, mm. we all deal with. It's it's um, it's a safety of uh, safety of life issue, and so people will deal deal with it. And um, and there are several instances where the ships involved were not, and first on the scene were not necessarily those that would have been dedicated toward the counter piracy mission, yeah. but were doing something else at the time. Okay. So 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 any yachtsman, Jerry, in that area, even before they get there. Or even if they're not under attack, should call. I mean, can they call the UK MTO and say, "Look, Yeah. Yep, they can, and they can advise the UK MTO that they're coming through. They can talk to MSC Hoa as well. Um, read BMP Five. Okay. It's it's a good it's a good document, and it's been really well thought through by the shipping industry in collaboration with the with the um, military, the insurance people, the lawyers. You know, it's a it's a really good piece of work. And as I say, it's now it's now global, so it's relevant to to security issues worldwide. It might not be quite as detailed for other parts of the world as it is for the Indian Ocean, because the Indian Ocean is quite specific. But Jerry, could you just break that down? BMP, best management practice. Right. Thank you. Best management practice five. You can Google it, and it will come up, and you can download the PDF. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, thanks. That's really really helpful. Um, and I'm sure the listeners would love to hear. I don't know if there is a typical uh, incident that you could uh, describe and just say, you know, how it developed and, and tell us a bit about that, could you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the um, the um, Italian freighter, the Monte Cristo, is a good example because it, it demonstrates how how distance and time is your is your enemy if you're in a situation where you are attacked by Somali pirates. Um, in this particular instance, she was a, a very new Italian freighter uh, not long out of the builder's yard, um, which is to her advantage because she had a lot of fire retardant materials built into her superstructure. And she was um, she was a bulk carrier doing about 14 knots. In her case, the, the, the best management practice measures, the self-protection measures, uh, the barbed wire, barbed wire around the upper deck, they were excellent, really good. Rolls and rolls of barbed wire, all well organized and managed held together with high tensile case cable around the uh, around the um, upper deck. She had a good super uh, good citadel or safe area for the crew which was the engine room and the steering gear compartment which was uh with um separate steel doors temporary steel doors that they could put in place um to further bolster their security and prevent uh break into those compartments and they could control the ship from the citadel and she had an unarmed team of uh, unarmed security team of Italian Italians on board uh, and a mixed crew, mostly um, Eastern Europeans uh, and Italian, an Italian skipper, I think. So she um, uh, was pirated um, or boarded by um, Somali pirates, right, pretty much right bang smack in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And the the nearest um, uh, military ships to her, which was the um, group that I was uh, in command of, the ship I had as my command platform, the, the, the RFA Fort Victoria, and a US frigate, the, uh, the Evert, we were off the Horn of Africa. 
um, close in on the coast of, of the Horn of Africa. But we were 330 miles away, and we were the nearest ships to her when she was pirated. And mm. she went very quiet on AIS, but she, um, the owners could still see her, her um, signal, um, her satellite positioning signal. And you could see that she was going around in circles for a bit, and then she straightened out after a while, and she came back up to 14 knots, her maximum speed, and started heading, roughly speaking, towards Salala. So we concluded from that that she was she had been taken over by the pirates, but that the crew had probably probably made it to the citadel. And Jerry, just can I just interpose that the fact she was going around mm. in circles would suggest they'd gone into the citadel, is that it? Well, that was the um, that was the fact the pirates had taken over the oh, ship, right. and then there was obviously some confused manoeuvring okay. going on. But what 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 in fact happened was that the um, the the crew made it to the citadel without their handheld communications, right. <clears throat> so they then couldn't talk to anybody. Um, and for a period, the pirates had control of the ship from the bridge, right. and the crew were able to remove that control. And once they removed that control from the bridge, and they controlled the vessel from the uh, mm. engine room, then she, she steadied on a course towards Salala, with the crew in the citadel and the pirates now on, on board. Unfortunately, the pirates hadn't been terribly good at tying their knots, or their rope hadn't been very reliable, and they'd lost their, their, um, their, their skiff. Had been tied to the, to the stern, and uh, the, the skiff had come away. So the pirates were effectively marooned on board the vessel, and their mother vessel, their mothership, which was a Arab dhow, which they'd stolen, um, was unable to keep up. <clears throat> so the pirates now are in a bit of a do or die situation. Either they get into that citadel and take over the vessel, or they're going to be taken all the way to Salala. We're in a situation now where the pirates are desperately trying to break into the citadel. They're setting fire to everything they can. And of course, but being a new ship with fire retardant materials, um, none of their fires really, really held. But they were trying everything they could to break into the, into, into the citadel. In the meanwhile, we, with um, the US frigate Divert, <coughs> headed up the track. Um, I had a, a team on board that um, were there specifically for hostage rescues of this, uh, of this, this nature. Whereas if we knew the crew were safe, then of course it was just a simple matter then of dealing with the um, uh, the Somalis. I mean, it could be dangerous, but we had a, a lot of open matter. A simple matter might be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but we had a lot of overmatch in terms of you know a helicopter with um, with a sniper on board, um, so you had the sort of top down look, and then a well a well um, uh, resourced team to get on board the vessel and take take it back over. And of course, time is now the issue because if if uh, the Somalis were able to break into the citadel, then it's game over. Then the vessel is hijacked, and we're into a hijack and ransom situation. There's not much we can do about that. So we got there when we arrived, or when the first of all the divert arrived. She's a bit quicker. She got there. The um, Italian uh, security team, the unarmed security team had been running up and down into the funnel. So they were able to look down on the vessel. They were able to take photographs of the Somalis, which was great because that was good evidence later on. Um, they had some listening devices out so they could hear what they were up to. And, um, and they also communicated by putting a message into a bottle with an EPIRB on the end of the bottle. And they chucked that from the, from the top of the funnel into the water. Nice flat calm day, fortunately. And the divert went over, picked up the bottle, and inside was a message saying, 
Um, you know, Somali pirates are on board. Um, crew are of however many it was, twenty-two, I think, all safe in the citadel. Please come and help. So, so that was that that was vital because that then told you they are in the citadel, and you, otherwise you wouldn't have known that, and that would have given you a certain amount of reticence. But since you got the EPIRB in the bottle and, the, and you knew what was going on, you could then basically send in the team, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, 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 that's, that was the, the important thing, is, is knowing, the, knowing the crew was safe. <clears throat> so they weren't going to get caught in any crossfire. And then it's just qu quite simply a case of, um, of arresting, the, arresting the Somalis. And once they realised, once the Somalis realised they're completely overmatched, they became you know, a great deal more compliant. Did you send the um, the rescue team in? How many guys would it be going in? And would they go in by helicopter or boat? Or what we had is a, is, the, is the helicopter over the top. You have the ships, the ships next to them, um, the snipers. The, the Somalis then actually at that point realised the game was up and they went and sat ah, right. corner where we they were, and then the team, the um, the, the boarding team itself, climbed on board. Not an easy job when you are quite heavily armoured and you've got body armor and everything else and a lot of barbed wire to get through and this is where the slight, slight irony of course we we had to cut our way in whereas and we, then afterwards we we looked around to see how the somalis had got on board and you could see where they'd come through the role of the rolls of um barbed wire by just gently parting it and and and, and climbing wow. their way through and they'd all come on board that way probably without a scratch and that was um two good rolls well, well, well arranged of, um, of barbed wire. And this was a ship, get back to your earlier uh, categorization of risk, this was a ship that was seen not to be a risk, a big ship, high topsides, could do 14 knots, and yet they, <laughs> they attacked her. Well, she had could be, I'd say she was, um, she was up there with sort of the, a, a medium risk. You know, right. she, she had good, she had, she had a, a, something like a, a six or seven metre freeboard. So at the top end of what, you would expect the Somalis to be able to get on board um, a speed of 14 knots, so still within the vulnerable speed area. But she had all mm -hmm. the BMP measures, the self-protection measures. Mm -hmm. um, had she had, had an armed team, the pirates wouldn't have got on board. Um, the fact that they were able to mm -hmm. get to the Citadel and stay there until someone helped them was, um, was the critical piece here. Now, the thing is, of course, that took us 33 hours to get to her because of the distance. She was right out there in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Now there were several other oh. vessels that were, um, were were boarded by pirates in the uh, Southern Red Sea, um, in a in a similar period, actually earlier in 2011. And in each instance, the crew had been able to retreat to the Citadel. Um, and of course, within a few the space of, um, of, of 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 a couple of hours, the the military were able to come and assist. And because the, the pirates knew that the military was in relatively close proximity, they had run around the ship for a bit, realized the crew were in the citadel, and they got off. They realized the game was up, and off they went. Yeah. Was perhaps recognition on their part that up, up at the Red Sea end, they haven't got so much time to get organized? Is, is that what caused them to um, migrate further out and onto, with the mothership operations and stuff? Uh, into the northern Indian Ocean. Well, they were already doing that because the, 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 the as soon as we set up the patrols in the Gulf of Aden back in two thousand, end of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, 
and the uh, and the international recognised transit corridor was run straight through the middle of the Gulf of Aden uh, as an as another measure to make the ships a bit safer. The um, the, the pirates realised that the Gulf of Aden was becoming difficult, and so they moved down into the into the um, Indian Ocean off the coast of Somalia. So that's the point in 2009 where you see, uh, if you like, you squeeze the balloon, you squeeze the balloon in the area of the Gulf of Aden, and funny old thing, they've all moved further out. And in fact, you then start to see Somali piracy moving further and further offshore. Um, and it's a result of that. But, mm. but it, uh, in the early days, you didn't see it in the Southern Red Sea. In fact, people were very skeptical there was ever going to be a problem in the Southern Red Sea. Um, but, um, but there was. And, uh, and, and in some ways, it's, a, it's an area that is, is, is relatively easy for maritime criminals to operate from because there's lots of little offshore islands and places to go and sit and hide while mm. you're, you're waiting to do the job. So um, in, 20, in early 2011, you see um, Somali pirates attacking ships in the Southern Red Sea. But the Citadel is what saves those vessels, about four of them, I think, where the, where the Citadel um, works very well for the crew and the Somalis just get on and they get off. Um, in the case of Monte Cristo, of course, they had no choice. They couldn't get off because they'd lost their boat. Um, another vessel, the Pacific Express, further down towards the um, uh, the southern end of Somalia, was attacked. The crew went into the citadel. The Somalis were successful in setting light to the super superstructure, not to do to, to, to specifically burn the superstructure, to try and burn the crew out of the citadel or smoke them out of the citadel. Yeah. The fire got out of hand, <clears throat> and the Somalis then got off. Um, and so by the time that a yeah. Italian um, warship arrived to rescue the uh, vessel. Um, she, was a, she was a blazing wreck. The crew were safe. They all got off um, safely, but the ship was a blazing wreck, and, um, uh, and there were no Somalis there either. So that was a, a very deliberate attempt by the Somalis to break into the Citadel, and it obviously it got very out of hand. Mm -hmm. and, and Jerry, um, did you ever, uh, in, in all of the, you know, that operation, did you uh, go to the assistance of any yachts and... How did, if you did, how did that all work? No, because we didn't see any yachts. There were no yachts. Right. In, in 2011, 2012, there were, there were no yachts at all out there that, that we came across anyway. Except apparently Red Eye, or <laughs> so it would seem. He went up there in 2011, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, um, I don't know whether his was earlier in the, um, in, that, in, the, in, the, in the year. But, um, I mean, clearly there was some, there was some yacht stuff going on, but most of the, the, the business I was doing at that time was down off the coast of Somalia itself um, mm. uh, or around the coast of Somalia. And we were, we only really passed through the other parts of the area um, to get ourselves to and from our mm. base up in Dubai. Did you actually talk to any of the pirates, Jerry? Did you? Yeah. We were partly involved in interrogations, I think. We had them on board as guests for right. some period um, yeah. after the. Um, after the period, the, the, after the various um, takedowns that we were involved in, so uh, and there were several groups of them that we we captured. I think we I think we captured or detained um, or prosecution for successful prosecution. I think something in the region of um, forty pirates. All right. Um, in uh, three different groups, I think um, two went through the Seychelles and one went to. 
uh, Rome. All right. And then we had quite a few others that we didn't have sufficient evidence. Okay. Um, so we we sent them back to Somalia. The, the reason I asked that, Jerry, uh, is that, you know, I've read, and I'm sure others have read, that the, the Somali piracy issue in particular started because their fishing grounds were being exploited by large sort of fish factory trawlers from other nations. And they turned to piracy as a result of that. And I just wondered, A, if you what your views were on that and whether you had any any sympathy at all for these guys. Well, I think um, there's most people would say that there's a certain amount of myth about that. It, right. it provides them with a, a justification. It provides them with their, their sort of Robin Hood. Yes. Um, having said that, there is some truth in the fact that there is overfishing in the Indian Ocean. Um, and there are these big um, Bora fleets, whether they be um, there's the, 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 the French and the Spanish um, uh, fleets that go around fishing for tuna, big, big um, uh, net fishermen. And then you've got others, um, Taiwanese and various Far Eastern uh, fishermen who are out there. Uh, and of course, they, there's, because Somalia is a, because it's a, essentially a failed state, yes. uh, there is no proper fishing regime around its coast. There's no one to right. license it, protect it. Right. And so it is a bit of a free for all. So there is a certain case that um, there's overfishing and um, the toxic waste dumping. There's been a lot of talk about that for years and years. Uh, we, we, in fact, said to the Somalis in the London Somali community, we, we, we spoke to them uh, one Saturday afternoon um, back in 2000, early 2009, when we were setting up EU NAVFOR. And we said, look, you know, we'd like to talk to you guys and, because we want to understand what's going on. And they talked about toxic waste dumping. And we said, look, if you can, if you can point to any evidence of it, we will try and deal with it. You know, it's not something, and, and same with the, um, the fishing. If there's any evidence of it at all, um, then it is something we will try and deal with. So you, you're not clear whether actually that was just a diverting story or was true, but in any case, it didn't get anywhere. Well, I think there's, I think there might be, it's, it's quite possible there is some truth to it. You know, we, we know mm, there's sure, overfishing. Sure. I mean, over, overfishing around the world is, is rife, and, and, it, and it's another subject in its entire, its entire right, and it's, um, it's something we should all be very worried about, along with all the other environmental concerns sure. that we have. Um, toxic waste dumping, uh, it is quite possible. You know, it's, it's very difficult to say. I mean, the fact that, that people talk about it means that it's, it probably has, they probably haven't entirely made it up. But is it the reason why they, they turned to piracy? No. no. Now, the reason they turned to piracy is because they could. Yeah. Because actually, they, over a period of time, which started quite early in the early 2000s, um, they, through various um, issues that were running with World Food Program ships and um, really mostly, mostly Somali on Somali problems, they, were, they, they discovered that actually there was a... Um, a successful a successful business model to be developed mm. in hijacking a vessel, holding it for a period, and getting the owner to buy it back. And mm. and they, they they we saw over a period of time, um, and I was involved in uh, various operations back in the sort of early two thousands, where we we saw over time that the ransom figures were slowly going up. They were putting in for these these ridiculous sums, like you know. You could hear you could you could tell they were you could hear that they were asking for five or six hundred thousand dollars to give a vessel back, and we all laughed. We thought, oh, it will be it'll be more like um, uh, sixty or seventy thousand or whatever the figure was. But that was the beginning, and 
Then they discovered that actually they could go and take any commercial vessel. Once they've done that, that, that early groundwork, um, in, in 2008, you then start to see them hijacking commercial vessels in the Gulf of Aden, um, and the ransom figures start to go up massively. And then we're starting to talk millions. Mm-hmm. But yeah. actually, at the beginning, even in 2008, that figure of a million dollars for the Sirius Star, you know, that's as a, as a relatively small back ransom, because later on, the ransom figures are averaging five or six million. Oh, right. were they? Wow. Mm-hmm. So no wonder it became uh, a properly developed uh, industry within Somalia. And, and Jerry, I mean, obviously, we've got very much you and uh, all of your colleagues and uh, various navies uh, around the world collaborated together, as you've just said, to um, largely eliminate uh, piracy in that area. And my understanding is that as a result of your actions, uh, by the time we got to so 2012, 2000, uh, sorry, 2013, 14, it was much reduced. But I think it's, re- I understand it's because of the problems in Yemen now, it's rearing its head again. I don't know if it's to the same level, but um, can you tell us about that? Well, it's the, the last time a major commercial vessel was hijacked was 2012. Um, since then, there have been a number of fishing vessels that have been hijacked. Um, so it's more regional type stuff. And there's been a number of attempts. And one or two of those attempts um, over the years have come quite close to a successful hijack. But we haven't actually seen a, a hijack of a, of a commercial vessel. And the number of attacks um, in the last, uh, last few years has not been great. In fact, the last couple of years, there's been hardly anything at all. Um, the the question there's so there's two two questions there's what's 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 going on why aren't they why aren't they trying a bit harder um, have they given up altogether um, but if they haven't given up altogether and we're still there's still that potential they might do it if they did do it would they have the same permissive environment along the coast of Somalia by which they could take a vessel down there and hold it whilst the ransom's negotiated the general consensus at the moment is that that permissive permissive environment still exists. So if a team of Somalis were to go out and successfully hijack a vessel, we think they would be able to take it down to the coast of Somalia and hold it there while the ransom's negotiated, because there's no forces of law and order on the shore side that would come and intervene and prevent them doing that. Mm. That's that's the key issue. And that's what's always made Somali piracy quite unique in that there is no shore side security that will prevent that ransom negotiation taking place. Mm. So that's the first part. The second part really is, okay, so why are they not um, proving to be more active? Well, it's partly because of the military patrols, the the BMP measures, the private security. Um, But it's also because uh, there is a a significant conflict going on in the Yemen. And the, the Yemeni economy and the Somali economy already separated by a bit of water. It's a very sizable piece of water, but it's, it's nevertheless just a bit of water. And they are effectively one and the same, in, some, in many respects, one and the same economy. And so the people who were involved at the top end of Somali piracy, what they call the investors, um, have got plenty to get on with in terms of business lines of activity running into and out of Yemen. 
whether it's weapon smuggling, fuel smuggling, people, or other more legitimate things. Um, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, there is plenty going on. And I think that is what is um, it's, it's one of the things that might be keeping them um, diverted mm. from uh, needing to go out and do the, uh, the, Somali, the, the Somali piracy thing. But, and the other thing I think is, is that, that they had a jolly good go at Somali piracy. They were very successful at it for a period. Uh, and then it started to become rather dangerous for them. An awful lot of young, young boys went out there in their skiffs and their whalers and capturing dows and hoofing around the uh, Indian Ocean, and they ended up in jail. Or they ended up marooned at sea um, and died of, you know, died, died of uh, lack of water and food. Um, and so the casualty rate really was quite high in the end for them. And so that will have, that will have um, eventually, the risk-reward ratio started to slip away from them. So, so do you consider that region from a yacht's perspective? Do you consider that relatively safe now, or how do you feel about it? I think it's um, it's it it uh, it's it's a very it's a very difficult one to quantify because threat is about capability and intent. Um, we know the capability is there; it's the intent which has the large question mark over it. And it's not just whether that's some, some, some Somalis coming out from the north coast of Somalia and heading into the Gulf of Aden um, to actually head across to Yemen and do something, but on the way back to moonlight and have a go at some piracy, if they think they can get away with it. Um, but it's also because as you come down through the yeah. Straits of Babel Mendeb, there's been all kinds of activity in, in that area. The, you've, um, you know, whether it's... Um, the Houthis um, firing missiles or putting mines in the water or radio-controlled boats against the, against the Saudis. Um, so there's all sorts of activity there. And of course, then it's just the general level of, of small-time criminality. And so it might not be that you're going to get captured in the way that the Somalis would do it, but somebody who comes on board your boat and steals your valuables at the point of a gun is a distinct possibility in that region. Uh, and once you get into that southern Red Sea area, the distances are very small. Um, though you know, it's, it's the, the coastal traffic that, that crisscrosses that area is is um, is is in a pretty good position to to do something to divert itself from whatever it's doing against something like a yacht. Uh, and of course, you're very slow moving, and you've got a very mm. low freeboard, so you're easy to board. Thank you for lending us your ears. We do appreciate it. Um, if you want to read any of the stories in Ocean Sailor magazine, and there's now a year's worth of magazines packed with, I hope, useful information, we're pretty certain it is useful, then you can find all of that on oceansailormagazine.com. Well, that was fascinating. Um, Jerry Northwood. What a guy. I mean, uh, I'm amazed, really, he bared so much of his soul that he did. <laughs> and it was his soul that he bared, really. And what I've learned from it, I'm sure you're the same, Dick, is that, you know, OK, you can arrest these pirates. You put them in cuffs, stick them down in the lazarette and sail off, uh, knowing that the seas are a bit safer. But 
then what do you do with them? I mean, the process of the legal finish, as Jerry rather nicely put it, is another thing altogether, is it not? It, uh, do you know, Dick, I mean, once he started to tell that story, the, the penny drops, doesn't it? Oh, OK, right, so we've got all these guys. Now, now what do we do with them? And who's going to take them? And they're bits, they're bits of this whole intrigue and story that really I never even gave a thought to. But it was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, as you say, bared his soul. I mean, he certainly did. You know, he's a quite a cool hand Luke, this guy. He is a, he is a and, cool hand Luke, yeah. And, and, and do you know what? He's the main man, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I think he's a great scout for us to have on our on our early days of uh, the Ocean Sailor podcast, um, because there's no question, Jerry was the main man. And that was just part one. I mean, there's another another full podcast to come from Jerry. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, we've, to use the phrase, we've, we've only really seen the tip of the iceberg of this whole issue and what has been done by the nations of the world to counter it. I mean, obviously, what we've discussed so far has almost exclusively been discussing the area that uh, our previous guest, Rene, sailed through. Um, and, you know, it's there's lots more. And in part two, I think, you know, everybody's going to really, really get some some great information. Well, there is some good information. I hope um, that listeners will find it useful because um, what I wasn't aware of was that uh, that check-in that uh, Jerry mentioned in the Gulf of Aden, where everyone should check in, you know, before they get there and if they're going and what sort of boat they have. That's very useful. It certainly is. I mean, uh, and and we'll we'll hear more about it, but uh, you brought up the subject of whether this had been, this whole piracy problem had been caused or even exacerbated by uh, Somali waters being plundered by international fishing fleets, which he didn't, he, he seemed to think that was really a bit of a, a myth that they were trying to blame it on. Yes. But it was quite obvious he was very interested in that. And, of course, he did bring up the subject that, again, another thing I had not even really thought about is in rogue states or states where the, the, the whole political system is broken down, that leaves the door wide open for to- toxic waste dumping, which is something he was uh, very interested in. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, exploitation of uh, of, of weak um, constitutions, uh, just taking the big bucks to buy more guns or whatever. Or not even, Dick. I don't even think it's probably that. I think it's just the fact that they've got no Coast Guard, they've got no Navy. So, uh, you know... Um, it's just dumped anyway, you mean? They, yeah, here you go. Nobody about. 200 miles from land, whoosh, over the side it goes. Who's going to track it? That's true enough. You know, and I mean, of course, that's the subject uh, that we're going to cover or or we're we're discussing in Next Ocean Sailor magazine. Um, You've put forward the Netflix documentary Sea Spiracy on uh, Mariner's uh, Library, and that's been a massive eye-opener as well, and it does actually... Uh, spliced together quite a bit with the, some of the things that Jerry has hinted at so far, but we'll perhaps get him to reveal more. Well, that's right. Uh, well, that would be very interesting. It's opened the debate. It's quite a contentious documentary. It's had a lot of criticism being uh, for being a bit too simplistic, and I wouldn't disagree with that. But it doesn't matter. It's raised the debate, and as you say, uh, maybe Jerry will come back and tell us a bit about his experience of that in, in another issue. 
Dick, as you know, I've 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 been a life not only have I been a lifetime sailor, but I have also been a lifetime diver. And you know, the degradation that is caused by trawling is yeah. uh, uh, it is it is heartbreaking yeah. because you can dive a beautiful area that's got a fantastic infrastructure of small invertebrates and corals and plumosa and anemones and everything else, and then you can you can suddenly find yourself swimming across what appears to be a desert really? and you can see the trawl marks and uh, you know we just can't keep doing this the no. planet i know you know it's an emotive subject for me something i'm uh, i'm very very concerned sure. about and um, of course that's just one small issue what you know what else we got coming up uh, dick in uh, in, in the next sailor? ocean in the next ocean sailor well of course we've got uh, the fantastic near completion of the k50 with tristan grace's great pictures i mean this is very exciting moment for kraken of course uh, and for all of us who believe in the in the in the project because this is the new version the two the uh, version two and i think you've been talking to uh, some of the lads at the boatyard well it's yeah it's massive for us at kraken it's massive um there's two aspects of this one you've already touched on which is that it is uh, version two, um, and we've been able to go back and look at the design, um, tweak the design in some areas, change them quite a lot in others uh, to improve them. In particular, White Dragon, as you know, the first Kraken 66 features uh, this beautiful full wraparound saloon window which is in very sexy black glass. It really looks magic, I can tell you, which people uh, refer to as Ray-Ban glasses, the big Ray-Ban sunglasses, Um, which we came away from a little bit under the previous um, Hong Kong management. So the jick, the wraparound, uh, the Ray-Bans, which is a a unique um, feature of all Krakens, when they were built in Hong Kong, they're a little bit compromised, I think, with pillars. You've gone back to them. Well, mullions. Not, yeah, Dick, mullions, yeah, yes. Dick, we, I wanted, uh, and Kevin Dibley, our designer, wanted to emulate the wraparound saloon window, uh, which is actually an iconic feature of Kraken yachts. I was, yes. really ups- I was very upset when I found it had been changed, I might tell you. Um, and uh, But we've brought that back in in the version two. And yeah, the point anyway, I mean, I don't want to labour the point too much, or perhaps really I do, because it's so important, this launch for us at Kraken. But um, yeah, Tristan uh, has been uh, uh, doing his penultimate um, Birth of a Blue Water Yacht uh, series, and uh, guys, hey, you, you got to look out for this. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the complete set of photographs. I've seen one or two. Yeah, it's very exciting. So what else have we got? Well, we're, we've got uh, for travel, uh, the travel pieces on the Bahamas. And what I didn't know was that uh, a lot of people go to the Bahamas and build their dream home <laughs> and then find out that, that it's a bit of a nightmare for various re- reasons, <laughs> either political or, or money runs out or whatever. And the islands of which there are 700 in total are littered with abandoned properties. So it's a bit of a strange thing, but people sail there and then go and have a look around these old houses. There you go. It's a sailing cruise around a ghost town yeah, or several, exactly. several yeah. ghost towns. <laughs> but of course, in what uh, this article exposes 
is some of the islands that are much less visited and are still yeah. pristine and beautiful. Yeah. And I'm in the process uh, of finalising an article uh, about the areas of the world that are still susceptible to piracy and the emerging areas, because Somalia is dropping down as a threat um, to uh, yachts, not, by the way, and I say that strongly, not at all that we are suggesting that it's a good place to travel and sail through yet. Let's hope it does become that. But there's too much, as Jerry's pointed out, too, too, much much political, too much political instability um, for, it, for it to be anything other than still A go-to risky. destination, yeah. Yeah, on. but there's, there's other places emerging, and I'm going to cover that in a big article about... Yeah. Uh, um, areas around the world and what is particularly uh particularly obvious when you see the chart of the world which we've done tristan and i have been um developing actually it's such a tiny part of the world that is actually affected by piracy yeah you know it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to say oh well never mind i'll go there anyway because you no. can easily sail past all of it and yeah. why wouldn't you and that's definitely my attitude um, and we've also got um, Morgan Grace uh, is, is doing his, uh, a, 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 another great article on uh, maintaining and keeping records of uh, checklists of boats. And I very much agree with him and, uh, and believe in that. Um, and of course, being being an airline pilot uh, is particularly, you know, it's particularly important that all those checks are carried on. Sure. And um yeah, of course, he's not doing too much flying at the moment. I mean, what, what I liked about his checklist was it came to an end. Uh, I used to say with a guy who started a list in January about getting his boat ready for launch in sort of Easter time, and it went on and Easter came, and the list were, was like a jotter full of things he had to do. And in the end, I realised he was just making this list. He was never actually going to launch. He just kept adding things to his list. Yeah, well, there's no such thing as a finished <laughs> boat, is there, Dick? No, doesn't matter. Enough. There, there is, yeah. That, well, that's. I'm not. I'm a your point. I've know. I've known a lot of people that have done that. There's always a good reason to stay on the land. Yeah. Um, having said that, there's an awful lot of people that set to sea, given that they've given a date, and then they're going to go anyway. Yeah. And that's a mistake too. Uh, I, I can tell you, I I always had two lists, which was must do and like to do. Fair and um. I wouldn't ever go to sea with must-do lists, out, uh, items outstanding. Um, but I often went to sea with like-to-dos outstanding and promised myself I was going to get them, but get them done. But of course, they always get, they always get overcome by must-dos, you know. Because yeah, more of those crop up as you go, of course. And we've also got our look at other boats that are not necessarily new. In other words, pre-loved, pre-owned, second-hand, Call it what you will, but there are a lot of boats out there which fit our our principles of a, an integral keel, a fully protected rudder, and a and a heavily laid up hull for those who can't afford a brand new Kraken. Yes, of course. Well, there are some. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that was the that was the question the lady asked us in uh, in the uh, readers' questions. 
Um, and it's it's valid. What, as you know, we found, I knew we were going to find this anyway, because that's why I founded Kraken Yachts in the first place, because nobody was building the right kind of boats anymore. Um, and But what we found is that uh, in Europe, to get the right kind of a boat uh, for ocean passage making with the three issues that you said laid up, well laid up hull, integral uh, hull and keel, uh, and fully protected rudder. You got to go back to pre eighties, yeah. Um, and that's not quite the same in the states. I'm not. I'm not quite sure why that is, is except for the fact that I think the production boat market, um, which is primarily you know French driven, uh, but certainly European, but the production boat market effect has affected or did affect America. Uh, a lot less than it affected Europe. And the Bob Perry designs that we know and love also, Dick, you know, they still um, were in production really until about 10 or 15 years ago. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the, there's there's boats in America that people can buy. Um, and there's a few boats. It's, it's been hard to find, as you know. We've been asking Kevin Dibley, our um, New Zealand uh, designer, um, to tell us about some uh, boats that fit that criteria built in New Zealand or Australia. Um, and the, so far, we've tracked down two, <laughs> two, yeah. two designs. Funnily enough, even then, most of those, most of those boats that were originally built pre-80 are still around, are still sailing, yeah. and there's some on the market. So that goes to tell you a lot, doesn't it? I, mean, lot. I wonder how many uh, I wonder how many production boats are still going to be sailing around this world in 30, 40 years' time. Uh, I'm, well, I'll lay money, not many. Um, they'll be crushed up and used as road construction material, which is what they do with old fiberglass boats down in Portsmouth. But, yes, no, that's interesting. I, should, I, I mean, I, I've looked at some of the boats that uh, – You've picked out Dick, and uh, you know found them very interesting. And I hope you found some of the ones I picked out interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was it was a good collaboration, Dick. I think we both both found yeah. different things. Boats that, funny enough, a, a lot of times the same boats appeared on both our lists, didn't? Yes, they? indeed. You know, That's right. You know, Contessa, yeah. Nicholson, Thirty Two. I mean, you know, they're they're boats that you you know you're never going to knock. It doesn't matter no. how old they are; they're still no. beautiful. They'll still sail across oceans when they're a hundred years old. Yeah, much like your own Dickie, which is a hundred years old. Well, Betty yeah. Two's a hundred. She is a hundred years old. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, start with start with good <laughs> foundations and what you've got to last year. That's particularly yeah. important when you're sailing across oceans out there in big seas. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Anyway, look. Uh, there we are then. There we are. That's it. It's been great fun again. Yeah. Dick, good and, stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice I suppose it. it's time for one of your very uh, interesting sign-offs. Now, perish the thought. All I'm going to say is that the skipper's telescope of omniscience. Um, has been clouded over by the pirate's eye patch of glaucoma. So it's shut eye from me and shut eye from you. Oh, oh my God. You're really clutching at the old straws with that one, aren't you? Hey, it's really dreadful, isn't it? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Fantastic. I, I'm just going to say goodnight. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>